0: Hello and welcome to this week's Law Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law & Sport. In this show, we've got a fantastic interview with Nick Patel, the CEO of the London Marathon, the chairman of Sports England, and a renowned sports lawyer. In this episode, he goes on to talk about his career, how he became a sports lawyer, how he transitioned into sports business, and gives some fascinating insights into sports governance, both on a domestic level in the UK, but also at an international level, and talks about some of the problems that we've seen with international federations. It's a fantastic interview. Stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the show. Nick, uh, thanks for taking the time out of it. what is a, a ridiculously busy schedule. Um, you've got a fascinating story about how you how got into sports law and how you ended up becoming the CEO of the London Marathon, and now Chair of Sport England. Um, You know, we discussed this, I think it was over a year ago now, in Chicago, over London, uh, or Breakfast, I think. Atlanta. Atlanta. Oh, Atlanta, yeah, sorry, Stan corrected, Um, in Atlanta. Could you, you know, just give us a quick run through, if you can, if such thing's possible, of your career up to
1: date? I always had a love of sport. I played rugby at a fairly decent level, um, and I originally went to university in America uh, to a small college called Davidson, North Carolina. And when I was there, I remember that the local uh, UNC team lost in the final of the NCAA basketball to uh, Marquis. And after that, I think it was the, they won after I'd left uh, because a young boy called Michael Jordan uh, paid, played for them. And I was always fascinated, really, since then, with a basketball and Michael Jordan. But the difference, uh, there seemed to be a really small difference that one person or one thing could make to a team. Throughout my career I've always seen that is uh, absolutely true on the playing field but I think it's also true for lawyers and what lawyers can do for sports. Sometimes it's not the massive changes that you think that you're going to be affecting. It is the small incremental changes but they can make such a massive difference to the sport, the club or the player. And I think that's what I've always found fascinating about sports law, in the way that we can have a, a major effect. Um, as, a, as a lawyer, I was very fortunate. I um, started in practice and saw uh, fairly early on. Um, 1984, seems a long time ago, um, that there might be a gap in the market, that the large firms, traditionally the people like Farrow and Co. had always acted uh, for sports organisations, but there weren't really much in the way of a competitor. I thought I was at a smallish practice and I thought here was a point of difference that we could effect and we could compete. A little little later, really, um, I came across Steve Townley who uh, a number of people in our industry will re- remember, and I thought, yep, there's a business model that we could go for. Um, I, my first sports law client was actually in the London Marathon in 1984, um, and we acted for them for uh, five years um, until I really understood, uh, I think, a bit more about the sports market. I also had a client called Keith Prowse. Who in those days was an independent company, did uh, sports and travel um, and hospitality at major sports events. And through them, I got introduced around and and I'm pleased to say uh, made some very good connections. Um, So,
0: what would you say is that, from from 1984, what was the the key difference? What was the sports market like at the time? Because I'm just presuming there wasn't the type of money around that's been. You know, that's banded about now and it, you know, it wasn't so such a mass participation activity
1: there wasn't um, there certainly wasn't the money in it and there weren't it wasn't seen as a distinct discipline um, Edward Grayson who uh, was thought of as really the, the Doyen of sports lawyers originally um, had just written a book. I think in the mid-'80s about what he said was sports law, but I think people thought he was a bit odd at the time. (laughs) I think people always thought Edward was a bit odd. (laughs) I liked him, but uh, no one really thought there was such a thing called sports law. Um, It was only really when I started to pick up events uh, after that. So I first acted for the Ryder Cup in 1989 and for Wimbledon in 1990, both of whom are still clients uh, today. And we saw there a different, as I, as I said, a slightly different commercial uh, operator. These weren't the federations. Um, and I think the federations, still in those days, were stuck uh, in an old mindset. They weren't particularly commercial, as you say. Um, and yet, these big events like Wimbledon Light like Rider Cup were thinking. In a commercial, they were thinking in a business sense, and that's why they needed lawyers who could help them see a future and see a way through. And we started acting for them in the, um, on those occasions.
0: And so, with your, it's fascinating actually to think that these standalone events, you know, helped you sort of blood into the, the sports law sector, and then, surely that experience then did help. You know, with some of the conversations and, and then working for international federations and national governing bodies as they started to cotton on that they could commercialise and, and should commercialise. Um, how did that impact?
1: Well it, it did help but national governing bodies still struggle with this idea of them being a commercial operator. Um, in my new role as chair of Sport England one of the things I've tried to do, one of the first things changes I've made uh, was to try and bring in an insight function into sport um, because in my experience national governing bodies international federations have been really slow to adopt what you would think of as fairly standard business practices and i'm afraid to say far too many of our sports really don't understand their customers not in the way that uh, when you see some of the really fast expanding sports, you know think people like tough mudder is what been a fantastic success story they really do analyse and understand what their customers want and how they're going to interact with them as a, as a customer stroke business relationship. British cycling probably out of our national federations do it better than most. So I started this insight function doing a lot of the basic research that if it was a business you'd be doing but then the sports haven't done so we're doing that for them and now we're rolling that out to them whether it's for youth uh, uh, a big piece of work we have on on young people take part in sport, women in sport, and trying then to get sports to understand this and operate with this insight in mind. Um, and I still find that today, as a lawyer, um, very often federations still don't think madly you know, commercially. I'm afraid to so. say.
0: And and what do you think the problem is there? Because my perception. Yeah, there's, you know, I feel like the FA gets a hard time. the RFU slightly less less of a hard time. Um, you know, most governing bodies and in international federations are, are there to be shot at. And in the main, they're doing a, a, a good job. But they, it seems that their priority is obviously focus, much like in the clubs, focus on the activity itself and what's, what's, what's taking place. Do you see it as a lack of expertise, a lack of... Um, uh, Prioritisation in terms of you know bringing the right expertise, or do they you know are they trying to keep? Yeah, you know, I think it was it was, Pati- it was Patini who was saying you know that you need for, or Blatter one of the two were saying that you have to have running a, an international federation, you have to have someone who's played the sport to a high level. Yeah, what, what do you think about that, and where do you see the
1: problem? I think the problem is twofold. One is the design of a National Governing Body and an International Federation as well. They are designed largely uh, for uh, rules to govern that sport, officiating, uh, discipline, obviously, is a major part of what governing bodies do. They're not really designed for um, services to the public. They are services to their members. And over the years, if you talk about people like the FA, the FA has been an odd hybrid, hasn't it? It's had what are major commercial pieces like the um, FA Cup and the England team. Um, but actually, it's not being run by, uh, in, in recent history, it hasn't been run uh, by a, a body that really has that expert um, views because it's largely come from uh, the game. And so one of the things that Sport England has been doing is trying to insist on governance changes, and that's about bringing independent experts onto boards. And that has been transformational. We've seen that time and time again with, with uh, national governing bodies. Unfortunately, I think, international federations don't have that. Now, they've got a wider pool to choose from, but far too often if you look at who makes up the international federations, um, they are fairly insular and they don't have... Uh, the experience, the business experience. They've got loads of lawyers. Uh, you know, every international federation will have a lawyer, uh, but they're not necessarily business lawyers who I think really does do understand uh, what a uh, an industry has to do, and a sport is an industry, uh, to modernise and improve.
0: I remember you speaking at a conference a couple of years ago. I think you stepped in. I think it was a Basel uh, British Association for Sport and Law conference. You stepped in at the last minute. And it was a really interesting discussion about governance at the time, and, and, and changing the, the makeup of, of boards of national governing bodies. It hasn't been an easy ride. So, how? What lessons have you learned from that? And what would you say were the most challenging uh, components of that? And you know, on the on we seem to be on the right side of the curve in that regard, So, what do you think? What like, the changes have been from the governing bodies since? or their changing perception, at least, to the importance of, of uh,
1: non-executive directors, for example. Um, I remember that. I remember talking about the Rooney Rule, which was then almost unknown or uh, unheard of in this country. Uh, fortunately, I think um, it's been heard of. Unfortunately, it's just not operated yet, but there we are. Um, because UK Sport and Sport England have insisted um, on governance changes and limiting boards, By and large, most of our national federations have got there, they understand what a a top performing governing body should look like. Um, The trouble is that change has been rather slow and there are still a number of sports who are struggling with a a mixed picture where they've got a council and they've got a board of directors and that relationship between the council and the boards um, is difficult and you think of the RFU who had the Slaughter and May report which was a very interesting piece of work, and they've been working their way through the recommendations, but it's taking time. The FA still has to work that out. The LTA has struggled with the council model. So I think they understand it at the executive board level, but they haven't quite worked out their relationship with the game, which is very often represented by a council, and that's unwieldy. So I think we are getting there. Lawyers have got a really important role, to play there, helping sports to understand that model, the models, other models that are out there, steering them through the process. Um, it's not just about a process driven, it's about having the the knowledge of, of, of alternates and really giving sound business advice, which I think lawyers are, are very well placed to do.
0: Coming on to that, that you know, uh, there's a lot of lawyers who I speak to are the, you know, maybe they're not sports lawyers at the moment, they you know, they'd love to transition to sports lawyers, or they are sports lawyers, and they look at you and think, that's what I want to do, <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> very
1: hard to believe, yes, but they look at you and think, you know,
0: you're, you know, a, a very good case study for, you know, becoming a sports lawyer, seeing an opportunity in the market, and I still say that there's many opportunities in the sports I agree in the market. That, definitely. Um, you know, seizing it, creating a, a good name for yourself, a brand, getting heavily involved. Within the sports sector and embedded within it, and then leading a sports organisation like London Marathon and being involved with in sporting, that then going to chair it. So, what do you think the skills, or what did you do when becoming a uh, as a lawyer that you think helped you transition into these roles? Um, and are there distinct skill sets for both, or are there these um, skills that could be married across both sectors?
1: Um, I think one of the fortunate things that I've had is my time at London Marathon because that really taught me to think commercially um, which I think has helped me as a lawyer and certainly I believe and if you ever talk to my clients I think they'll tell you that my advice to them is not merely legal based it is got a, a good dollop there of business knowledge and information and advice that I'm able to give them. And that, I think, is, is part of the lesson. If you look at the um, people out there who, have, who are still lawyers, so someone like um, maybe Steve Burton, as an example, at, at Couchman's, who's done a fantastic job uh, realising the value of data to a, a sports organisation. That role that's, that a good sports lawyer has is not really just about the law. It's much wider, much deeper, um, and that, I think, must be the secret. So I was very fortunate I had this relationship with London Marathon that really helped me to develop that side of my uh, knowledge. That's what I think governing bodies especially need and value. Um, And there are some lawyers I can see out there who do it. Uh, Not enough. Sometimes the law... Uh, the legal advice that they give, giving is really straight jacketed by the law without thinking on a wider context.
0: I, I've seen you uh, chair sessions, for example, very well at conferences on a number of occasions. I can't help but think that you know that that skill set was gained and developed. Maybe you, you just did it to the university or were born naturally gifted, but um, you know, presuming that, that you know after after some professional training in law, that that skill has helped you and in a as a head of an organisation of a sports body with so many stakeholders to deal with, that discipline and structure from law, would you say that's helped? Uh,
1: Undoubtedly, the legal discipline, um, being able to analyse um, and cut through, which I think all good lawyers have that ability, that's massively helpful in the sort of work that I do. Uh, I am always shocked by the number of times I come to a board and people either haven't read their papers, they certainly haven't understood their papers, whereas I think any decent lawyer, and of course not just lawyers, but any decent lawyer will have gone through that. They'll have picked up the salient points very quickly and they'll be able to drill down. and you see it with judges the whole time, really, You know where they're faced with an immense amount of paper. They've only had it a short time, but they can pick up the points very quickly, uh, the good judges, that is. Um, that sort of skill, when you are chairing an organisation or when you're a board member, a non-executive board member, that's a valuable skill. I think that's one of the things a good lawyer brings. And I do see that um, time and time again at, at various uh, sports federations, um, when you really think that person's had that training, it's been valuable. So someone like Ian Metcalf, who was senior partner of RAGS, who's um, a very senior member of the RFU board, now chairing uh, Commonwealth Games of England, again, you see someone like that has bring, brought all of that experience as a lawyer, uh, um, and is exactly the sort of case study, I think, that um, would be a model to follow. Uh, for other sports lawyers.
0: So you mentioned cases. <laughs> I'm curious to hear what your favourite case or piece of work that you've been involved with. You know, you could you could use an example of just your favourite sports law case that you you know that that <sighs> takes your fancy, or, or you can talk about, um, you know, an area of work or a piece of work that you've been involved with that you think you know what I'm really proud of this.
1: Um, I'm obviously very proud of. Uh, winning in the Supreme Court for RFU against Viagogo. I thought that was uh, a very interesting case intellectually, but broke new ground. Um, Viagogo were an odd opponent. Um, It's been reported though, I'm not giving away secret, that when we won a particular interim uh, costs order against them and they had to pay us £10,000, um, they turned up with a wheelbarrow full of £1 coins to pay the, the uh, £10,000. That gives you a little bit about what their mindset was.
0: So, so just, just to give some background, um, for, for people who aren't familiar with the case, because it is, a, is an important case for sure. you. Um, um,
1: we um, applied for on behalf of the Rugby Football Union against uh, Viagogo, which is a secondary ticket selling site a platform for others to sell, they would say. And because they're not selling, they say, we we couldn't apply for an order against them to stop them selling. And we couldn't get to the people behind them because it's all shrouded in mystery and secrets to who is the person selling. So we applied for a discovery order, Norwich Pharmacal, which uh, obviously would be familiar to to everybody. Um, There were, therefore, quite a lot of arguments about what is a ticket what are the contractual terms, what remedies might you have, is it inducement to breach, is it trespass, all sorts of cases, and the uh, both High Court, Court of Appeal, and eventually uh, Supreme Court had to look at all of this. Um, I was a bit surprised, actually, that the Supreme Court gave permission to appeal to them and took it up, but it was because there had been no cases on these arguments and they were... Um, Some of them are quite novel and complex.
0: And this was important to the RFU because it was essentially saying, because their view is that they try to keep the ticket prices um, static, so therefore they can get the most um, fans essentially into the stadium and have access to people who play the sport, to have access to to, to watch internationals and other matches.
1: I think it's very important to all sports because... um, When you look at somebody like the RFU or Wimbledon or the FA, um, who is in their stadia is a very important part of their commercial mix. Um, It might be that you don't want to have too many corporate uh, hospitality guests because it changes the atmosphere. Um, Some will remember Roy Keane who famously talked about the prawn sandwich uh, brigade I don't think what people actually knew was it was a dig at sports lawyers, uh, because that day we'd had a, a Baal sports law conference at Manchester, at uh, which he popped in uh, to, to have a word with, with us and um, I think that it was a particularly pointed <laughs> dig at us. Um, but, you know, that sort of resonance, and you've heard people like Mike Cat in the past talking about wanting to make sure that the fans are behind them and, and that, that if there's too many corporates in the stadia, it alters it, and they don't feel as though they've got that uh, home advantage. And it might be things of that nature. It's um, also important commercially that you're trying to Benefit those people who put into the sport on a regular basis. Certainly, that's the R F U view. They want um, the people who are playing in clubs and supporting clubs, or officials. They want to benefit them to keep them into the game. So it was an important. These are this is a very important uh, policy. I think for the R F U and others, um, and we'll see how it develops over the years because it's still fairly new. Via Gogo now claim to be based in Switzerland and uh, there may be more uh, litigation ahead.
0: You've got a great insight into the sports law sector and, and as we've heard, to, to international International Federation mm-hmm. and the business of sport. What do you think are some of the challenges, you know, or, or what interests you at the moment? You look ahead and think, hmm, this could be an interesting in development. Um, what do you think a challenge that's facing the sports industry as a whole at the moment?
1: Um, the challenges facing the industry, um, a sports industry, may be slightly different than the sports law industry. Uh, the, the challenges facing the sports industry, and I think to some extent, therefore, lawyers, is really the idea of content for free, uh, which is a massive challenge for sports, um, be it um, television pictures, be it radio, be it, be it news. How do you control that? And there are I think a lot of people are struggling with that at the moment. Um, Sports law is absolutely vital to trying to help federations to understand those challenges and what can be done. Uh, But as we've seen with the Premier League initially fighting YouTube and then trying to do a deal with them, and we've seen it time and time again around the world, it's sports law that is going to have to help them. There may be a technological solution, but we haven't found it and everyone's always claiming it's around the corner. Uh, My experience is that pirates will always find a way around technology. So what is it that lawyers can do to help and and change the dynamic there? Because otherwise, um, all of the immense success that we've seen, whether it's Premier League, whether it's cricket, whether it's rugby, uh, all of those require exclusivity. And if you lose that exclusivity, then there's a danger so I think that's the thing that most people are struggling with You know, do you allow people to take photos when they're in stadia you know the Ryder Cup used to say no and now they've sort of come to a hybrid position what do you do about drones which are increasingly becoming a, a challenge for sports um, at the Ryder Cup we did have one betting company threatening to fly an eagle with a camera over it so these are the sorts of things that uh, we've got to think about for the future
0: I think yes yeah, very good point, and you know we're covering a lot of legal issues at the moment on this particular vine. Um, you know exactly the same points, and it is a challenge because the technology is enabling people to do things that were just not envisions a few years ago. Absolutely, and I, I'm not sure as well that um, a lot of the judiciary and uh, a lot of lawyers and some of the, even people involved in the media sector understand what is happening at the moment. Um, so it's a very good point.
1: But it's also data. I mean, it's it's, it's data which is going to be the core of a lot of businesses and we don't, as, a, as an industry we don't use data particularly well I think there are well, one or two I can think of but generally we don't and the conglomeration of allowing others be it you know, betting companies or be it others to use our data and how do we monetize that, Those are that's another serious challenge to the framework of sport Yeah. So
0: the advice would be to make sure you do engage with lawyers early in that front because you hear I've heard of cases where um, football clubs for example have essentially given away their database of their fans to betting companies without realising it um, you think that's such valuable information um, and, and uh, you know just giving it away it's not quite for free but for very low cost um, to finish off with what would you say of three? if you could give advice to and I always ask this question to people like yourself because it, you know, it's really interesting to, to hear your perspective on it What three pieces of advice would you give to someone who is aspiring sports? So they may be just starting out in their career um, at university, or they may be, you know, as I I meet quite a few senior lawyers in other sectors, particularly in-house counsel, who who then want to work for sports organisations. What would you say are the three three key um, skills that they should have?
1: I think that certainly the general skills of listening before you speak, that's a general one which lawyers, I'm afraid, tend to forget. Um, I do believe, as I've said before, that lawyers, especially in sport, need to be more commercially minded. and They need to really understand, and, and that's probably the skill set that I see more rarely amongst lawyers, certainly sports lawyers, than any other skill which is valuable. So trying to understand business models, how business works, I think that's the sort of thing that will transform some any lawyer, uh, sports lawyer especially, from being a, an ordinary technical lawyer to a great lawyer, and there are a number of examples out there. Um, and then finally, I suppose, uh, if there's no substitute, I'm afraid, for hard work.
0: That's excellent advice. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, it was a pleasure to interview you. Um, and, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for for this show. Remember, for all your expert commentary and analysis on the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, you can go to lawinsport.com or follow us on Twitter at lawinsport. And remember, you can now check out our membership plans. So you can become a standard member and get access to three peer reviewed articles a month, unlimited access to our features, unlimited access to our news uh, articles. If you become a plus member, you get some fantastic benefits, including unlimited access to our peer reviewed articles, access to our job board, discounts to our seminars, discounts to our conferences, webinars, etc., um, and exclusive access to these. So, if you want more information on that, go to lawinsport.com forward slash membership. Um, have a great week and thanks for tuning in.